0: Afternoon, I'm Tracy Johnson, filling in today for Jeff Wagner on this very, very busy, jam-packed Friday afternoon. Uh, We've got a a great show for you today, and we had a great show planned. And we news happens, right? Texas shooting. We're going to spend a fair amount of time of our first hour, kind of digging through that, getting your first reactions to that. We have a a couple of guests in the studio as well to to kind of break that down, but. It's also graduation weekend for many Milwaukee College students, and we have very low unemployment in our state. So where will these students find jobs, and what are they going to be doing after graduation? What does this mean for our ability to, to hang on to these students? Uh, then we're going to take a look at the governor's race and assess Scott Walker's vulnerability in light of a very important endorsement that one of the Democratic candidates just received. And then... As we all continue to identify with political parties, especially in a very controversial election year, uh, we've we've had an interesting take this week about no labels, and we're going to have Austin Ramirez, who is helping with that movement, uh, on the phone to talk about that. And if there's a place for no labels and identity politics Uh, and we're also going to dive into a local story about harley davidson and how do they stay relevant uh but first as we mentioned uh a very very somber morning with the news out of santa fe uh texas uh we're going to spend again a couple of minutes talking about this i want to hear from you this first reaction i i i heard about this and like every time I hear about this, I was, I just am emotional about it. I would have thought I would have been numb by now. But, you know, this is a, a predictable array of events, right? We're going to have shock and sorrow, and then we're going to talk about what do we do about it, and we're going to, to get angry about it, and then we're going to talk about the solutions, and then we're gonna we're going to do nothing, right? As a society... When are we going to come to to grips with the solution that's going to work? This is not a partisan issue. This is about kids. This is about guns. This is about our society. And so what are we going to do about this? Um, Right now, we have in studio Steve Scafidi, former mayor of Oak Creek, and uh, Jill Didier, former mayor of Wauwatosa. Thank you for for sticking around.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. I mean, I I spent most of the last three and a half hours talking about this story. and It's one of those things you never want to have to talk about it. I I had a great show planned, but we didn't do that show. We're talking about a mass shooting at a a high school in Santa Fe, Texas. And as somebody who's gone through that, I agree with you. It, It does become emotional. I do get angry about it, because we continue to not find anything that actually works to prevent and not that anything's 100% preventable, but at least slow this down. We have not done a good job with that in this country.
0: Well, and Jill, I know you you had talked about this on the on the Friday forum as well as a former elected. Uh, your first take, your emotional response to what just happened.
2: Yeah, when you talk about it, you're right, it's, it's anger. But as I'm sitting here now with, with you two, A thought comes to to mind and it's fear. To your point, we have to do something because you mentioned graduation and you mentioned that we're going to talk about things as a society and not do anything. And those two things just resonated with me. As a mom, I'm thinking, my child's going off to college. You know, and and the college shootings and the mass shootings, and what are we going to do about those? And then my mind started whirling of, what about at 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 a sports event or a graduation and somebody comes in to shoot or has a bomb? And suddenly, sitting here, I took my political hat off, I took some of my nerves that I had with Steve off, and I'm sitting here going... These are real fears that maybe we didn't have long ago when, when I graduated. It never crossed my mind that something could happen. But this is the time that we're living in and we have to get rid of the politics. We have to move and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to talk about that. And as a society, not talk, but those that have the power to take action have to do it. Well, and we're going to come back after the break and we'll,
0: we'll, dive a little deeper about as an elected what do you do what's your first response how do you talk to the families because as as a mom whose kids are sitting in school right now I think this could happen in in my community Uh, and what what do we do what is your response as an elective official again uh, we're following the breaking news throughout the day we'll break in uh, with press conferences or other news about the Santa Fe shooting again eight to ten a uh, confirmed dead 17-year-old shooter who appears to have been a student. They're finding explosives uh, throughout the campus, uh, and they're continuing to keep people updated. Again, the Santa Fe, Texas shooting. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Good afternoon. This is Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. We are following breaking news today, uh, this morning, as a a shooting in Santa Fe, Texas brings us to this place once again. uh, Talking about school shootings, talking about the fear, talking about what may or may not be the reason for this, talking about what we as a society can do and what we can do as elected officials. Just a few minutes ago, President Trump was giving a, a, an announcement giving its thoughts and prayers uh, but he also is very consistent in saying that we need to keep the weapons away from the people who will use them the the bad guys so to speak and that the guns the guns while used to kill these people are not the problem necessarily there's There are lots of factors to this. And without going to the left or the right and trying to ban all guns or trying to lock everyone up, there has to be a realistic solution that as a society, we can resolve. So with us in studio, we have Steve Scafidi and Jill Didier, both former elected officials, who have dealt with situations like this. Steve, what is the first thing that an elected official does when they receive this news. Well, I mean, the
1: way I found out in 2012, I got a call from my police chief and fire chief within about two minutes of each other, and they inform you what's happening with very limited detail. First response from an elected official, contact the rest of the people in your community, right? The, you have to contact the other elected officials, city attorney, city administrator. So you're all on the same page. Here's what I know. Here's what's, what's the next step. You, you ask the, the, for the guidance of the, of the public safety professionals, what do you need me to do? In my case, went out to the scene, was in, uh, spent most of the next six to eight hours out there just helping them in any, any way I could, crafting what our first public message would be, but listening to what law enforcement was telling you. Because in this, in this scenario here in Santa Fe at that high school, law enforcement controls the scene. It's not about elected mm-hmm. officials. You're there to assist and that's kind of what i the way i looked at it in 2012.
0: Well, and when you said that right there, i was thinking if if you had a student in that school, could you imagine as an elected official and, and Jill, you had students in in the schools when you were serving as mayor. What's going through your head when you're you're forced to be that elected official but then you're your mom
2: and what what what's going on with my kids or my kids friends? Well, to 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 take a little different Approach than Steve when he said he went to the scene when we had an officer-involved shooting. Now, that's not the same thing, but it's just as serious. And in that particular case, I chose not to go to the scene. Um, I support law enforcement enti- entirely and believe in our Wauwatosa Police Department and believed in their communication skills and their ability. And, and it was... Um, easier for me to stay away and stay in communication and allow them to do their jobs than for me in that particular case to show up on the, you know, to show up. So I took a little different approach. But when you're talking about kids in schools, I think as an elected official, I would be there, you know, I think because my first instinct would be that of a mother. Mm -hmm. And I think I would show up first to, to find out, is my child safe? because that's that's instinctual it is and that's 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 what just goes through your core then I think as the elected official you immediately put on that other hat and and you have to be there for your community for your officers for the constituents you have to be there you are you are the 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 leader and you have to be in control
1: I had chief John Edwards former uh, chief of Oak Creek's Police Department now retired and he said you know, one of the things they have to do is assess the situation because there's a lot of uncertainty in the first few moments after one of these things happens, including what personnel has responded to it because it's not just your local community. You'll get federal agents who are close by, state agents. They're all going to come to that scene mm-hmm. because they know something's happening. Assessing that, figuring out who's doing what, that's the first couple of hours after something like this happens.
0: Well, and in this case, there, there the unknowns could be, continue to pop up right there were explosives that were we we
1: learned that in the last hour or so
0: well and and the other thing is I don't want to say crowd control but but the the people that just come out and want to see this the parents who are concerned the media that that has to be there that wants to be there that that has this thirst and this this desire to know but shifting to what we do as a society and we've we've unfortunately been talking about this for a long time In Wisconsin, are we taking responsibility for this and are we doing what needs to be done to make people feel secure?
1: I talked to a lot of lawmakers on my show and off the record outside of the uh, studio. And and what they've told me is when they've assessed the schools in their districts, some are doing a good job, some aren't, including some very lax security. If you're running a school district as a superintendent, as a school board, and you're not paying attention to this Mm -hmm. story that's played out too many times, you're failing your community. You're failing those individuals. You, a, a child or, or a parent shouldn't be slaughtered in their school building. There's, there's things you can do. I've been talking about this for five years. The first line of defense is a strong, fortified school, and that means whatever it means in your area, whether that's metal detectors, mm-hmm. a strong security system, doing the things you need to do to keep kids safe. That needs to happen And I don't know why school districts have been pushing back against that. After today, they they shouldn't do that any longer.
0: Well, and even when you think about the expense, and I I just, I I can't help sit here and just be worried about my kids. They're in school right now. Um, Just thinking about what's going on with them. And uh, I do know that in our schools, though, to your point about the security and safety, they do have those, those. Those are those double doors. Uh, I know it's sometimes a pain in the butt, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is for the safety and security of the students. Uh, Jill, uh, your take: what what needs to happen?
2: Yeah, um, strong supporter. School resource officers in the school have them there. Have them at events. They get to know the kids. They communicate, and in Wauwatosa when we started the school resource officers it wasn't just a burden on just the school systems budget it was it was between the city and the school district to fund that Um, I don't know where it is today but I think that maybe that's a a way of funding is to look at public-private partnerships with some of this we haven't ever I don't recall ever having a conversation of is there a public entity that we can work with to help fund some of these additional costs at the the need to protect our children and then Tracy another big thing I'm a huge supporter of mental health we've got to have counselors in the school that are there talking with students anxiety is on a rise bullying is on a rise social media if you don't get enough likes you, you don't feel that you're as worthy as, as the next child. We've got to be able to to have these conversations that help and support these kids with these emotional differences than what we had when we were growing up.
1: I'll make a prediction for you. I, you know, I'm watching the, the monitors in the studio. Now it says nine students, one teacher killed according to CNN, and, and that is unfortunate. You're going to see a commitment by the federal government, I would think, in the near future of an incredible amount of money to, to be devoted to school safety. If they don't do that, then they're failing all the citizens of this country. I would predict that will happen in the next six months because well, something has to change.
0: Well, and, and you've just teed it up as a, a, a national, is this a national initiative? Because we've seen not only state by state, and, and I, I think Governor Walker has made some commitments along these lines, and he's made some comments along these lines. But it's about the local control. But at some point, these locals aren't making responsible decisions, right? They're, they're spending this money on different things. And I know these school districts aren't flush with cash, and I know that there are priorities. But this is different, this is different, and this, there, there are solutions that can be made in the immediate short term.
1: Nothing is absolute, but you can do things to make it harder for these kind of people, these students in this case in Santa Fe, to get into these buildings. It's not perfect by any means, but slowing this down, preventing what you can prevent, I think is important.
2: Okay, what about this? So we talk about schools, we talk about the federal level, but one thing that always crosses my mind when we hear about the stories after the fact and we hear about the guns or the the stock that was in the room, in the house, Mm -hmm. or in the garage, one thing that I think is interesting is is there is a responsibility as a family to have that communication with our children. And um, my children actually are texting me as we talk on the air, and they'll probably be a little embarrassed, but you know what, I still put their laundry away. I go in their rooms and I always have it's not something that I do just because they're in high school but I always thought when I had children I have to keep the line of communication open you can't hide things within your own house and by by putting the laundry away I'm I'm in their space and it gives me that chance to always look around the room and make sure everything you know looks good good and I have that dialogue with my kid I think that we have to not just focus on the federal level which is absolutely necessary and And protecting our schools. But let's all focus on on the family, too. What can we do to increase our communication, increase our knowledge of what our kids are doing and what they're involved in? And again, a lot of that also goes back to social media, too. Being able to to have a feel for what's going on in your children's lives. Well, and those are concrete examples that we can... really
0: think about and, and how situations like this make us really try to think through that solution, whether we can control it or not. Jill Didier, Steve Scafidi, thanks for joining me in studio to talk about this very somber event. This is Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Tracy Johnson on WTMJ filling in for Jeff Wagner today. A very active day talking through the uh, Texas Santa Fe, Texas school shooting. We now have uh, a student that has come out to dis- with a description of the shooter. Uh, he says that he was wearing a black trench coat, kind of a short uh, man with a, a sawed-off shotgun. A sawed-off shotgun. Now we'll see if these uh, these this information is is confirmed. What do we do about? this as a country I I, what is your reaction this is this is a recurring event in our country what are you going through right now I know I, I would have thought I would be numb to this right now as as I I heard about it initially I thought oh okay another shooting but as I started to learn details and it really started to sink in I I get really really emotional and 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 just keep asking these questions. What, why, how? 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 414-799-1620 on the AccuNet Talk and Text Line. What is going through your mind right now? Where did we screw this up again after the last shooting? Can we make this right? 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The Brewers are almost home, but first, they must make a pit stop in the Twin Cities. The crew squares off against the Minnesota Twins to kick off a three-game weekend set. Jeff and Lane are on the call and our covered starts at 635 tonight, sponsored by Wisconsin Cranberry Growers. We're, we're getting a reaction now to the shooting in Santa Fe, Texas, uh, another school shooting Another day, another school shooting, that just seems to be the theme. We're taking your calls 414-799-1620 on the Akinet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Mayor Scafidi, uh, Steve Scafidi, uh, had mentioned when we were doing some some crosstalk that that this should be a a possibly a federally mandated solution, that the federal government should be involved. We leave this to the states, but but there are so many holes in The security and the safety in the schools. 414 799 1620 on the Econet Mortgage. Talk and text line. We saw this in February Uh, mass shooting, lives lost, and it's happening again. It's happening again. The the students go to school minding their own business, and, and a classmate comes to school, a school that's unsecured, no metal detector, no security glass, they come in and they start shooting. Now, we talk a lot about mental health and we talk a lot about this is the student who's who's, ultimately at fault, of course. But as a society, we need to protect ourselves. And, and is this a federal solution? I'm beginning to think that we need to just take this and as it as a as a society have a one size fits all solution in the schools none of this yes have an officer at some schools have a metal detector at other schools listen i'm a mom i've kids in a school i want as much security as they can have so that they're safe because this is going to continue to happen and we heard you know and we see this in the news that that this is happening more and more often i i'm reflecting on an incident when i was in middle school uh this was 30 years ago and a student who was in my class actually came to school not with a gun but with a knife and she wanted to hurt someone she wanted to cause problems and and that that kind of they comes back to me when we're talking about this and and maybe that's why it's so so poignant is that that this is real and it it can happen to anyone and whether it's a gun or a knife or or anything else these people that want to cause harm and mass harm they're going to try they're going to figure out a way to do it. And and I'd ask that question, where did we go wrong? Why does this keep happening? And uh on the acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line, somebody said, you know what, we we didn't really do anything. We said a lot of thoughts and prayers and we said a lot of I'm sorry, it's too bad. Even Secretary Va- Devos just came out and said, you know, sorry. How long is this gonna last? What are we gonna do about this? 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Brian from Milwaukee, welcome to WTMJ.
3: Hi, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little upset in that we don't talk a lot about, you know, the kids that do the shooting. Why? Why Why did they do the, sh- why, did, why were they so upset and so distraught that they came to school with a gun? And the I think the issue is the other students. You know, you made a comment, oh, the students go to school and mind their own business. No, they don't. They're creating problems. They're treating other students poorly. They're bullying other students, and they're creating these monsters that are then coming to the school and shooting their fellow classmates. The problem a lot is the student. I'm a former school board member. I know a lot about school security and a lot about these issues. Uh, from the in the 90s. And, you know, especially nowadays, with social media and everything, it's the students bullying other students. And then they're to a point where what else can they do?
0: And I, I I would agree that we aren't always very nice to one another. And that social media, of course, can exacerbate this. But at what point is this you got to toughen up people. You can't bring a gun to school and shoot people. And and I guess there's the defensive mode and then there's the offensive mode and and somewhere in between when we talk about how do we just protect protect our students, protect our kids from these bad people, whatever their motivation. Now I don't disagree. I don't disagree that we're not very nice to people. Uh
3: I think the metal detectors, you know, you go to the airport, you go to the courthouse, you know, federal building. I mean, there's a lot of buildings, you know, Bucks game, Packers game, Brewers game, you're getting you're going through a metal detector. You know, you can put those in and the kids just walk through them and you can have, you know, there is private sector security, armed security guards.
0: Well, and I think and I think it's a time that we need to address this on a widespread level. The locals are not doing their job. Thanks for the call. Tom and Racine, you're on WTMJ.
4: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, here's my situation on it. Like I told your, your screener, what we're dealing with are underdeveloped brains. These, these are not complete you know, adult people at that, at that level. And what we need to do is stop making celebrities out of these kids you know, they they go and they get a gun and they go, you know what, six months ago somebody shot up this school and a year ago somebody shot up that school and their pictures in the paper, they're on the news, they're here, they're there. I want to be famous too. So I'm gonna get a gun and I'm gonna shoot up my school so that I can be famous. And and I think that's the bottom line. Instead of instead of and it's not all media, it's certain media that makes celebrities out of these kids and they aren't smart enough to figure out that they're going to go to prison for a long time, if not maybe be, be killed in, uh, you know, in, on their way to prison. I think we should stop making celebrities out of these kids. We don't need to know what they ate for breakfast. We don't need to know what kind of shoes, what kind of pants, what kind of clothes they wear. Stop making celebrities out of them. And I think that will curb it quite a bit. You know, if you're not going to become famous, why should I do this?
0: Yeah. And and Tom, thanks for the call. I think Tom makes a a good point that we, you know, in our effort to figure these people out, figure out what motivates them. Of course, we we are attracted to the story and we we dig deeper. Uh, But what happens if we just we we need to focus on on the victims, right? Focus on the victims. Don't focus on the shooter, to encourage copycats, right and and a lot of times these people go in and they're suicidal they do not care what happens to their lives to their lives they don't value anybody else's life and they don't value their own lives where did we go wrong why did this happen again we'll take a couple of more calls coming up after the break 414-799-1620 on the acunet mortgage talk and text line (laughs) some good news in the fight against opioid abuse. They're saving more and more lives in Waukesha County. How are they doing it? Waukesha County Executive Paul Farrell shares the details when he joins John Mercure at 350 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. We continue to follow the uh, Santa Fe, Texas shooting with more details continuing to come out throughout the afternoon. And we're taking your calls on this. it, 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 It hit me Real hard this morning hearing about this this shooting as as we we were going about our day, thinking about what are we going to do today this we're heading into the weekend, and then bam, this news, and how do we react? Are we going through the same steps over and over and over again, the same course of events the the anger, the fear, the shock, and then all these solutions, and then nothing, and then it happens again, so I had posed the question. What do we need to do? Do we? Is it time for a federal solution? Jeff in West Bend, you're on WTMJ.
5: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I don't really have the solution, but I I believe that school security is a myth in regards to metal detectors and things of that nature because we would only be preventing. The shooter from getting inside the school mm-hmm. um, what happens at the end of the school day when all the kids are leaving the building at the same time if somebody really wants to shoot school kids for whatever reason there's going to be an opportunity at the end of the school day or if you extend something beyond maybe like the get them to the bus well what happens when the bus leaves the parking lot now there is a bus full of kids that are an easy target for somebody who really wants to do something
0: I think that's an interesting take uh, Jeff and you know, it's a crime of opportunity. It's a, it's a crime of the situation is right, and I, I get what you're saying. But as when you think about it from the other side and you say, a metal detector, it, it doesn't really address the root of the problem, which is the people who are doing this and the access to the weapons, the root of the problem is, is not solved for. But kids are going to be safer. On the whole, if you put up these barriers and you try to stop these people from entering the school, they will be safer, or at least parents and communities can feel that they're safer. Uh, Mary from Madison, you're on WTMJ.
6: Hi, thanks for taking my call. A couple things that you said kind of hit buttons with with me when you said, um, where did we go wrong and we need to toughen up? I agree, but probably not the way that you're thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me in more.
6: Society, Parents and need to toughen up and stop giving out trophies just for kids showing up in life. I think, I truly believe, we have created a generation of people that expect things to be handed to them. They get an award just for showing up. If they don't like something, mommy or daddy are going to take care of it for them. And they don't know how to function in the world without social media. I, I see kids graduating from high school every day that can't fill out the simplest of forms, but they know how to text real well on their phone. I mean, how are you going to get through life on that? I have a friend who's in HR who recently had an incident where a 20-something, didn't like what was going on at work, called
0: her mommy, and had mm-hmm. her mommy talk to her boss. But but when it comes to to the students, I and, and, and I, I did mean it in the sense that we need to teach our kids that when they're bullied or when they're told that they're not good enough, that they need to find other ways to feel good about themselves and, and not take this approach of, 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 of wanting to get even or retaliate. I think that's what we're really, really talking about here. But, but I, I guess I, I change that around and say what we have now is a society that seems to be perpetuating this type of behavior and if we don't do anything to stop it what is that next phase of this 414-799-1620 on the acunet mortgage talk and text line where did we go wrong as a society that this continues to happen and it's interesting i've I've covered this topic a number of times on and i hate to say that I hate to say that I've covered this a number of times because it 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 happens so frequently but we 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 go to that place of of that mental illness we go to trying to solve the problem of the student and we don't do anything. We don't do anything as a society. And so Jill Didier who was on earlier said, you know, I'm a mom and and I I fold my kids' laundry, and I do that because I want to see what's going on in my kids' life. I want to be in touch with what they're doing, with what's going on, and if there's something that's out of place, then it it, it will raise a flag that there's a problem, and I can talk to my kids. And and that sounds so simple in the context of a 17-year-old who... Puts on a black trench coat, gets a sawed off shotgun, and goes to his school and shoots his classmates. There's such a disconnect there. Where did we go wrong? 414 799 1620 on the Aconnect Mortgage Talk and Text line. We'll have one or two more calls coming up after the break. Tracy Johnson, WTMJ.
7: W277 CV and WTMJ, Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studio, this is News Radio WTMJ.
0: Good afternoon, Tracy Johnson on WTMJ, filling in for Jeff Wagner this afternoon. We're covering the, the breaking news, the story that continues to evolve out of, out of Santa Fe, Texas, and uh, the, the text line is just on fire uh, with people with all sorts of of, of comments about the violence in video games, with the bullying. Um, There's one comment from the 262 that school shootings and violence in schools is down 50% uh, since 1994, uh, and that that we're really focusing on the emotion of this. and, and, And yes... We are because this is an emotional issue. It's emotion that that drove the shooter. It's emotion that is going to continue to drive this conversation. And and I, and I would agree with this texter that we we need to now focus on action. We need to focus on solution that will change these statistics, that will create safety so that we're not afraid to send our kids to the schools. Bill and Stephen's point. You're on WTMJ.
3: Yeah. Um Hello. Thanks for um, letting me speak here. I think the whole problem is there's pure lack of discipline. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, my father had guns and this and that, and, and if you went by that point, you know, of course the, gun, the, the bullets were locked in a safe, and, and you knew what was right and what was wrong. You were taught that by your parents. And I know there's a lot of single parenting going on, but, but I think personally if disciplinary rights, not beating rights, should be reinstated. A good swat on the butt don't hurt when you're
0: blowing off. <laughs> Bill in Stevens Point, thanks for the call. Mike in Germantown, you're on WTMJ.
4: Yes, good afternoon.
0: What do you think? What, what do we need to do about this? Uh, and where did we go wrong with that caused the shooting in Santa Fe? All right.
4: uh, I can't give you a specific because of Santa Fe, but I can I, can, I can say in general as far as where we go wrong, it continues every single day, and that's, that's in the home. Whether it's single parent or not, Um, this has to, has to start with the family. All right. If you do not, if you do not have good parenting, if you do not set a good example, um, if you do not follow, you know, the right things that should be done as a parent, this will continue. I don't care what happens with gun laws, who says what, whose fault it is what. None of that matters until the parents actually teach their children their right way to grow up and to be, um, a good person. Uh, and frankly, where are the answers? The answers are in the good book. There's only one book.
0: Mike, thanks for the call. Uh, this is going to continue to evolve throughout the day, the shooting, the school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas. Uh, we appreciate your calls, the emotion. Where do we go from here? Right now, from WTMJ, this is Tracy Johnson. Good afternoon, this is Tracy Johnson on WTMJ, filling in For Jeff Wagner uh, on this Friday afternoon Uh, last hour we were covering the breaking events of the Santa Fe Texas shooting and we will continue to do that throughout the afternoon but uh, moving on to a a really fascinating topic uh, that that was breaking in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin this week a political revolution that seeks to support candidates in the rational middle. This is led by former food industry executive Catherine Gale. And the launch event featured a number of executives who have traditionally been identified with the Democratic or the Republican Party. I thought this was just fascinating how this was put together, how it evolved. And so we have Austin Ramirez, CEO of Husco International, a Wisconsin-based manufacturer, who was at the event and emceed the event. We have him on the line with us now from Waukesha. Good afternoon. Hi, Tracy. Hi. Hey, uh, tell us a little bit about this event and this this event of no labels.
7: Well, sure. So first of all, um, you mischaracterized it a little bit in that the event wasn't necessarily about electing new candidates in the middle. It was about taking a look from an academic perspective. The event was led by Michael Porter, who's a mm-hmm. famous Harvard Business School professor, and looking at our politics industry from a strategic perspective and identifying why is it that our politicians are failing uh, to deliver results in politics as opposed to just competing uh, to divide the voters into the, into the two camps of, of Republicans and Democrats. So it took a kind of a holistic view of the politics industry. And we talked about a whole range of different ideas uh, that would start to fix the dysfunction in Washington and, and, and help all of our elected leaders, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or, or somewhere in the middle.
0: Well, in Austin, you had with with you at the event, there were a number of of, of leaders who had traditionally been identified on the left or on the right. Do you think that This movement has really picked up steam or this conversation has picked up momentum as a result of the last election.
7: You know, I think um, I think there's just a tremendous amount of frustration among voters of every stripe out there across the country. And it's not necessarily an ideological issue. Both Republicans and Democrats are frustrated and they're frustrated because politicians aren't delivering policy solutions. We're doing a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing. We're kind of retreating into our own camps. And the discussion on Monday was around how do we change that dynamic and how do we start having politicians compete for the ideas that all voters care about and actually on delivering those ideas, not just on fighting about them and dividing us into, into two, tef- two different camps.
0: Well, and when you talk about ideological positions, it, it gets really difficult to actionize them. What were some of the solutions that came out of that event and that discussion?
7: Right. So what I'm most excited about are changes to election processes. So today, if you're a, a politician, Republican or Democrat, and you want to keep your job, the thing you care most about is winning your primary election. And in Wisconsin, we run our primaries. They're, they're close. They're Democrats or they're it's either a Democratic or a Republican primary. So if I'm a if I'm a Democratic elected leader, and I want to win my Democratic primary, I really have to cater to the people on the far left of the political spectrum, because only a very small slice of the voters come out and vote in the primary. And so I'm interested in changing our primary system to move from what we have today into what's called a a top four nonpartisan primary, where you would still have Republicans and Democrats running, but you would choose the top four who would all proceed to a general election. And then in that general election. You would have a, a ranked choice voting process so you could actually rank your first second third and fourth choice and then have an instant runoff so that if no one gets a majority of the vote in the first round you can allocate the votes to um to, to a person's second choice so that eventually you have to wind up with one politician who's gotten a majority of the votes in their district
0: well that sounds very democratic uh, are there any other countries that are, are doing this or or any other scenarios where this works because it, it sounds it, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense.
7: Right. I mean, again, it's applying business strategy concepts to the politics industry. And I, I agree that the results are really intuitive. The most interesting example, I think, is California. California's instituted. They don't have the top four primary, but they have a top two primary. So you, in California, it's mostly two Democrats that would proceed to a general election. But then in the general election, the, you know, the one that might lose in the primary, where there's only you know, Democratic voters and a small number coming out, could win in a general election. And what we've seen is in the 6 years since California's implemented this top 2 primary, this, the California citizen approval of their state legislature has gone from 14% approval ratings to 45% approval ratings. So it's it's almost tripled. In terms of how the citizens of that state view the performance of their state legislature,
0: well, and those approval ratings would would follow successful legislation or would would follow results, presumably. Absolutely. And and that's really what we're we're trying to get at here. So, so you spent some time in Washington D.C. and 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 I actually just got off a plane from there. It, it is a very very different place. Uh, you know, can you actually get things done in a world where you don't identify with one party or another or did you get the sense that in washington when you're on the ground that's really what it's like
7: well so i think the problem we have right now is that the incentives are set up to encourage politicians to go to the polls of their ideology it, again it comes back to that needing to win partisan primaries and until we change the fundamental incentives that politi- politicians respond to I don't think we'll get a change in behavior. So today, I think it's fundamentally broken. We've actually got, you know, I spent a year working across two administrations. I spent six months working for President Trump and six months for President Obama. And I was amazed at how much agreement there is among the policy experts in a whole range of different topics. The the problem isn't policy solutions. The problem is getting politicians that are willing to you know, move away from the ends of their party and, and focus on the solutions that the majority of Americans agree in
0: well and when when we hear from 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 Paul Ryan for example he he talks about the the amount of of progress that they actually have made unfortunately that's not what gets the headlines because most people at their core want to get things done and 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 have good faith at the core so how can someone who identifies either as a democrat or a Republican? And whether they're on the far left or the far right, how do they engage with this movement? How does this gain momentum as you see it?
7: Yeah, I think it, you know, there's many ways you can do it. I think part of it, though, is focusing on the rules of the game. Until we change the rules of the game and the incentives for how we elect our leaders, I don't think we'll see systematic change in Washington. So, you know, a lot of people think that the rules of elections are are fixed, that they're fixed in the Constitution and unable to be changed. The reality is, these things have evolved over time, and, uh, and they're state-by-state issues. So if Wisconsinites want to change the tone that they're hearing from D.C., the first step is let's address the election laws in Wisconsin and get our elected r- officials focused on, you know, actually implementing the, politici- the the policies that Wisconsinites care about.
0: Are you doing this in other states? Are they, Is this a conversation that's nationwide?
7: Yeah, it is. You know, Catherine and Michael, who who really presented the, the presentation on Monday, are working you know, across the country. There is... You know, you asked about this latest election cycle and whether that's, you know, magnified the interest on these these kind of political innovation topics. And, you know, to be honest, I think it's been building for 30 years. I think we've seen a steady uh, degeneration of, um, you know, nonpartisan collaboration on governing and actually getting things done in D.C. And I think people are just growing increasingly frustrated with the dysfunction they see and, and are willing to think about new ways to do things to try to change the dynamic.
0: The no labels movement and the no labels initiative Austin Ramirez CEO of Husco International was the MC at a, a, a forum that happened earlier this week thank you for joining us on WTMJ my pleasure thank you so what do you think about the no labels movement what do you think about about the comments that were made can this really work can we create solutions that 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 get rid of am I a Democrat? Am I a Republican? And is this amplified by the last election and all of the things that happen and the divisiveness that that continues to be slung across the aisle? I think it's a fascinating concept. I want to hear from you. Can this work? 414-799-1620. Are you willing to have no label? Not a Republican, not a Democrat. 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk & Text Line. Good afternoon, Tracy Johnson on WTMJ, filling in for Jeff Wagner on this Friday. Last segment, we had a a call with Austin Ramirez, CEO of Husco International, uh, talking through this no labels concept and and how candidates can come to that rational middle and focus on policies. And, And is that possible in this world where we identify so strongly as either a democrat or a republican it used to be that we would separate by race or socioeconomic factors but so often now i find myself and i think many of us do saying oh is that person a democrat or is that person a republican rather than focusing on the issue and the the vast majority of the things that we have in common and our willingness to get things done. It's the no labels concept and I think it's something that you're going to continue to hear more about because because really at the end of the day at its core our government works for us and our government is supposed to get things done and what we've seen is that partisanship and, and going to the left and going to the right when you get too far off it really, really hurts the chances of anything getting done. And of course there's money and campaigning and and all of these other factors that must be weighed in. But but the idea of trying to create substantive change and, and Austin had talked about how do we really do that and having a ballot that would that would really winnow down the best qualified candidates in the democratic process. Now I was just in Washington, D.C., and we were at the Capitol meeting with legislators, and, and I, I found it really interesting. We met with Democrats and we met with Republicans, and across the board, I was surprised at, at the amount of kind of despair that, that everyone felt and the fact that, that they just passed the most comprehensive tax reform. In many of our consciousness and they still thought that there were missed opportunities that there were other things that that weren't addressed that needed to be done and it was almost universal it was it was very surprising I think as someone who had come in uh, really thinking that it would be a very uh, a very active place where people were motivated to get things done I think there's also a lot of uncertainty tied to the upcoming elections, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side. And the fact that that there's a lot of uncertainty with the president and what's going on with his administration. And so that all kind of puts a cloud over the way that the legislators work. Now, don't get me wrong. While we were there, they made the appointment uh, of the new CIA, CIA director, Gina Haskell. They passed a number of Senate resolutions. Uh, but overall, I was I was really surprised. So I don't know what changes that. It's the partisanship, I think, at play. Uh, but focusing on the solutions, focusing on where we have the most in common, uh, as Austin Ramirez was suggesting with this concept of the rational middle, where things get done where the rubber meets the road that's where we need to go tracy johnson on wtmj welcome back wtmj this is tracy johnson filling in for jeff wagner we are going to have Summerfest tickets to give away later this hour so listen for those details uh coming up in a few minutes uh but so so this is a big big weekend in Wisconsin for many college graduates. Both UWM and Marquette University are going to be putting on their caps and gowns. They're going to be finishing up their their college days, and they're going to be entering the real world. At the same time, we have unemployment. the unemployment rate in Wisconsin, uh, not only here, but across the country at the lowest rate since the year 2000. And just yesterday, Wisconsin announced that the unemployment was at a record low of 2.8%. So where are all these graduates going to work? Well, you've got a lot of these jobs that are being filled, but fortunately, there are a lot of jobs being added. But are these jobs ones that that require a college degree? I guess we'll, we'll find out. Our hope, though, is that We can keep these students here in Wisconsin. And and as we know, with the the addition of Foxconn to our regional economy, there are going to be a lot of jobs that need to be filled. There was a, a white paper that was recently released in the LaSalle Network that asked the 2018 graduates about their job searches. And I know when I was towards the end of my college career, I had that job lined up six months ahead of time. But in this case, this day and age, 86% of the college graduates had not accepted their first position as of March 20th. So with only two months before graduation, two months before they're theoretically supposed to be on their own, they had not identified where they were going to work. And I'm not sure if they think that there are so many jobs out there that there will automatically be one for them, or if they really don't know how to go about this process. So, you know, digging a little deeper into this study, how are these graduates finding jobs? And it was interesting to note that that networking is kind of resurfacing. They're saying, heck with the online job searches, this is just not getting me to where I want to be. How am I networking? How am I leveraging the people that I know, the people that my parents know, using social media for good uh, and, and trying to identify those jobs? And I, I actually found it refreshing uh, to, to see that number because as someone who, myself found all of my my opportunities through that networking process. I feel like a lot of kids with their, their technology focus would be looking online, but, but no, they're networking. So congratulations to those graduates, whatever their methodology. We wish those Milwaukee and Marquette graduates the best and hope that they'll stick here when they finally uh, do find a job. Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Good Friday afternoon, this is Tracy Johnson on WTMJ, filling in for Jeff Wagner. So, Milwaukee has been narrowed down to a list of, of host cities, a, host, a list of eight host cities for the 2020 Democratic Convention. And we've been following this since February when there was kind of a a, a, a launch to... To make that pitch. So, the eight cities that have been invited to apply include Atlanta, Birmingham, Denver, Houston, Miami Beach, Milwaukee, New York, and San Francisco. And just this week, Republican Governor Scott Walker said that this would be a huge win for the whole state of Wisconsin, projected to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to the area, 50,000 people that would come to hotels and spend money in our area. And, and this is a, a, a big deal uh, uh, for our state, for our region. So we have one of the leaders of that initiative with us today, Alex Lazary. Welcome to WTMJ. Thank you, Tracy. Glad to be on. Yeah. So, so you have been involved in a lot of things in our city, including as a senior vice president of operations for the Milwaukee Bucks. You don't do anything halfway, including your effort to bring the DNC here to Milwaukee. So. I want you to talk about what's happened since you expressed the interest in applying for this convention.
8: Yeah, so so far we have um, so since we expressed interest that uh, that we wanted, we've now become one of the one of the final eight cities um, to be asked to submit an RFP, a request for proposal, uh, to be able to land the convention. So so far, we've been raising money from uh, from the corporate community, trying to show that. Uh, that we have corporate support uh, and trying to build our bid lobbying effort uh, in addition to that we've been trying to do some uh, some community events where we're trying to raise awareness and and build support um, from a broad base of the the Milwaukee community and then also we've been doing um, some events at some uh, some DNC meetings where we try to kind of uh, allow DNC members uh, to come to our event and ask us any questions about the city and try to promote Milwaukee as a whole uh, and try to dispel any negative preconceived notions that they might have. Because a lot of people believe that Milwaukee doesn't have the hotel rooms or doesn't have the ability to host a convention like this. And that's just fundamentally not true. And so our hope is that with this effort, uh, we'll be able to dispel all of those preconceived notions and remarket Milwaukee as a top-tier city in the United States.
0: So this is really an opportunity to bring them here and kind of show them around for them to kind of test it out?
8: Yeah, so after we submit our, our RFP, um, there will be site visits this summer where the selection committee will, you know, about 10 to 12 of them will come out to Milwaukee uh, for a couple days and they'll take a look at a lot of the technical aspects. So making sure that we have the hotel space, where are all the hotels, um, what does, you know, transportation look like, um, what does the arena look like and its surrounding area and how can they set up for security but then more importantly, it's our, it's our chance to really pitch Milwaukee and to really show them why Milwaukee makes sense. And, you know, our, our biggest things are, look, you want to be in Milwaukee in the summertime. There's no better place in August uh, than Milwaukee. Uh, you know, the, summer, the summers here are just absolutely incredible with the rivers, with the lake, um, and all of the outdoor activities that are going on here. Uh, two, it's a really affordable city, um, so you're not going to have people, you know, breaking their banks trying to get here, which is a major part mm-hmm. of the entire um, convention process. Uh, and then three, there's just a lot to do here. Um, you know, people don't really understand, I don't think really know that, you know, the restaurant scene is extremely diverse. And uh, and I think, you know, per capita, one of the top in the, in the country, there's also a ton of of entertainment um, and bar options here as well, not to mention the Brewers will be playing. So now we just really look at this as an opportunity to show the committee, you know, why Milwaukee makes the most sense and why it's uh, a better option than any of the other cities.
0: Alex Lazry, who is working on the committee to bring the DNC convention here to Wisconsin in 2020, could you expand a little bit more about what this means for the entire state? As we mentioned earlier, Governor Scott Walker recently came out and said this is a great win for our entire state. What does this mean for the state?
5: Yeah,
8: so, you know, not to just mention, the you know, for what it does for Milwaukee. Um, you know, it's over $200 million of economic impact, 50,000 people coming to the city. But that will also spread across the state. So we're going to need um, vendors uh, to and, you know, and event spaces all across the state. Uh, to be used and to be able to uh, participate to help make this a successful convention. Uh, additionally, and I think most importantly, this is all you know this is billions of dollars of free advertising for the city and the state. This is going to be a way for us to showcase Wisconsin um, as a top tier state and as a state where young professionals mm-hmm. uh, want to live, work, and play. And so that's where that's where we look at, um, you know kind of the reason that this is one of the biggest things, one of the biggest conventions. For the state uh, to be able to get, because it's just so um, it, it, it's so nationally focused uh, from a uh, from a public relations point of view. But this is our chance to really market it um, and really show people that when you're graduating college, when you want to go to college, um, when you want to start a family, this is where you want to be.
0: So, do we really grasp how big this is? This, would this be one of the biggest conventions we've ever had in our city?
8: Uh, I think this would be the biggest convention Milwaukee's ever had. Okay, um, and and it's not just from a uh, you know from a, from an arena perspective. This is just from the totality of it. So when you look at the billions of dollars of national advertising uh, that that Milwaukee will get, um, you know, over two hundred million dollars of economic impact, and just the amount of people that are going to be coming here. You know, fifty thousand people uh, I think came to the Philadelphia convention uh, in two thousand sixteen. So this is this is going to be something that will put Milwaukee and Wisconsin on the map and in the discussion um, as a top tier city in a way that it just hasn't been before.
0: So, so Alex, what do you think the chances are that we are the final pick? And is there kind of a weeding out process where they're top four, top two, and then final selection?
8: Yeah. So they'll um, they'll, they'll select which cities will get site visits, um, and then. In the fall, they'll probably narrow it down to two or three, and then in uh, in the winter, you know, in the first part of 2019, is when they'll announce uh, the the winner of the of the convention bid. Now, I think we've got a really good chance at it. You know, I think the technical odds are one in eight, but yeah. I think even even when you look at all the other cities, you know, Milwaukee and Milwaukee just makes the most sense. It's a politically interesting state. Uh, and as I said before, it, it's easy to get to. You know, we've got the Milwaukee Airport. O'Hare is, you know, just as easy to get to from Milwaukee as, you know, downtown Atlanta is to get to Atlanta's airport. Uh, it takes just as much time. So
0: It's more reliable, it, you know, too.
8: The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so when you look at transportation and then the weather, I think, weather and affordability are going to be some of the best things that, that we have to offer. And I think finally what makes us so compelling is really the co-location of where all of our event spaces are. So the arena, convention center, Panther Arena um, are all right next to each other. And I think that's important when you're looking at it from a security aspect. But now I think it's going to be the city and the state that's really going to take this home just because when, when people really look at it, they're going to see, oh, you know, Milwaukee does make the most sense because it's going be, uh, to be the best time. And everyone's going to have an incredible time coming here. And that's what's going to lead to a really successful convention.
0: And and great economic development. Alex, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the big news about the the Milwaukee Bucks with the pick of the new head coach. uh, Mike Budenholzer, what was the deciding factor for the team?
8: Yeah, I think we just really liked what Mike brought to the table. Um, You know, I think he, he talked about a lot of the things that you know, that we could, uh, change in terms of some of our defensive schemes and offensive schemes. But most importantly, I think it's just the creativity and his past success. I mean, I think that's when you look at a head coach who, you know, took a, an Atlanta team, um, and, you know, brought them to 60 wins, uh, brought them to an Eastern Conference finals, was coach of the year. You know, this is a guy who's had success, uh, at all, at all facets of his career and, now, he's one of the more innovative coaches, and I think he's someone who's going to come in here and immediately change the culture and, uh, and is probably going to be one of our best offseason guests. So, um, you know, all the candidates were, were great, and I know everyone probably says that, but, you know, we were really thrilled with, with the quality of candidates that we had. Uh, and we just felt that Bud kind of checked the most boxes and, um, and is someone who just is going to immediately be able to come in and, uh, and take us to the next level.
0: Well, Bucks Nation is excited. You get the thumbs up all around. So congratulations on that. Congratulations on submitting the bid for the DNC convention. We're going to follow this closely, and I really appreciate your time coming on and giving us the update. Alex Lazary, Senior Vice President Thanks, for the Milwaukee Bucks.
8: Have a great weekend.
0: You too. So coming up next, a local company, uh, Harley Davidson, the one we love and know. Is it idling now or will it come roaring back? Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. The world's largest music festival is right around the corner, and we want to send you there. We have a four-pack of tickets to the big gig to give away right now. Caller number eight takes home a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest at 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. 414-799-1620. Caller number eight right now. Those Summerfest tickets are yours. And even if you don't win, don't forget to come see us at the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. We'll be broadcasting live throughout the entire run of the festival. Uh, Last segment we had on uh, Alex Lazary, who is not only the senior vice president for the Milwaukee Bucks, but is really one of the leaders of the, the initiative to bring the DNC convention to Milwaukee. And Governor Scott Walker, just this week, made the announcement, made the endorsement, really getting behind this movement to bring what would be likely the the largest convention that we would have for our state, for the state of Wisconsin. And what does this mean for our, our local economy, for our state's economy? Two hundred million dollars. So as we understood it from Alex, there were eight cities that were invited to apply for this for this position. And then they will be vetting those eight Cities that include Miami Beach, San Francisco, Atlanta, Birmingham, and a number of others. They'll be vetting those throughout the fall, and it sounds like we should have an answer here in the next uh, couple of months. And and how exciting that would be for our city and for our state—the economic impact, the visibility, and the timing of all of this. Right, lining up with the new Buck Arena, with all of the things that are happening in our city and in our community and in our state. Uh, we really enjoyed that interview. And then, of course, the commentary on the new Bucks coach. Um, it, it just really an exciting time uh, here for Milwaukee and for the Bucks and for the organization. Even though we didn't make the playoffs, it just it just wasn't our year. Next year, next year, we'll be in the playoffs with a new coach, a new arena, uh, and hopefully with news that we will be receiving the largest convention that the state of wisconsin will have ever had this is tracy johnson on wtmj up next we'll talk harley davidson
7: w277 cv and wtmj Milwaukee from the annex wealth management studios this is news radio wtmj
0: good afternoon tracy johnson on wtmj filling in for jeff wagner so the the race for wisconsin governor is is really heating up and i would say more from the standpoint of the democratic perspective and who that democratic candidate is. We all know who the republican candidate is, Wisconsin governor Scott Walker, the incumbent. But the the we the democrat candidates there seem to be more and more joining the race every single day and and the republicans say the fact that we don't have a clear standout candidate is going to be what favors the Republicans. Well, that race is 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 becoming clearer and clearer. Tony Evers, who has been one of the top contenders, he's won three statewide elections in the last decade. And while the other candidates kind of fade into the background, Josh Paid, he's a 38-year-old analyst for J. Crew. Uh, you know, a number of others. Well, Mitchell Malin, Malin Mitchell yesterday, just received a huge endorsement from the Wisconsin AFL CIO, which represents public and private sector workers in more than 1,000 local unions statewide. It's it's actually one of the latest endorsements, series of endorsements won by Malin Mitchell, uh, who's really, really benefited not only from the name recognition from the endorsements, but the dollars that flow in as a result. And so I think what we have happening here is kind of a, a narrowing of the field even before this Democratic primary takes place. And I think we're going to start to see those others kind of kind of fall away. The August 14th primary, I think, I, I think we'll see people drop out before we even get to that place because they're going to realize that the money, the money just isn't there for them to have this this bloodbath and to kill each other over. Because the Democrats are going to be fighting hard for, for many, many other seats. And there are only so many dollars to go around. And not to mention, Governor Scott Walker already has run three television ads as part of a $1.5 million ad buy. And there isn't even a Democrat on the ballot. And even though Governor Walker has a lot of dollars in his war chest and he is the only republican candidate at this point he's in full campaign mode because republicans in the state of wisconsin automatically have less than 50% of the vote and so how does a candidate cut through any of of the opposition messa- messaging how does that candidate set the stage for what the conversation should be. And I think that's what you what you're seeing here is you're going to see a lot of 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 ads before even the democratic primary of Scott Walker really touting his his the low unemployment rates, touting the Foxconn development, touting so many of the positive things that are happening in this state. And then the coalescing of the candidates on the democratic side. And, and I think we're starting to see the emergence. Uh, Malon Mitchell, again, he's a firefighter from Madison, just received a major endorsement from the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, which represents the private sector workers in more than 1,000 local unions statewide. And that endorsement carries a ton of weight and carries a ton of dollars that are surely going to carry him a long, long way. So the Republicans, as I mentioned, know that this is going to be a tough race. They will not take anything for granted. You just never know how these things go. And so many of these, these conversations, so many of the successes that Scott Walker is touting, the, the messaging on the other side is, is very powerful. And if this blue wave is real, and in Wisconsin... I don't think any, any of the Republicans take take in it take it for granted. You just never know not just the, the speaking points but the turnout. The turnout for this election. So Scott Walker, Malon Mitchell, Tracy Johnson, WTMJ. Tracy Johnson in for Jeff on this Friday afternoon, WTMJ. 208 in the afternoon. Uh Earlier this week, a group of business and civic leaders uh, got together to launch an initiative uh, that would light up an iconic Milwaukee landmark. And they're trying to raise $1.5 million to, to, to light up the Hone Bridge. This is a concept that has been talked about. I believe it's a concept that has been tried. And now this group is really going to do it. The group is known as Light the Hone, and we have on the phone with us Mike Hosted, Director of Innovation for Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Thanks for being here.
9: Hey, Tracy, thanks for having me, how are you?
0: Great, great. So this is a lofty initiative to light the entire Hone Bridge. Everybody knows what the Hone Bridge, it's the icon, an icon in Milwaukee. Why are you doing this?
9: Well, I, I think for a number of reasons, um, you know, obviously we we'd love to see the bridge lit and look beautiful uh, in the city skyline, but because we're taking the approach of a crowdfunding campaign to make this happen, uh, this is just about uh, as much about collecting uh, people's positive stories about Milwaukee as it is about lighting the bridge. We're we're looking to do this in recognition of of you know, kind of the often unseen and under celebrated acts of. Uh, kindness, generosity, and service that give our city and our region hope. So uh, people have the opportunity to dedicate a light bulb in uh, honor of something positive for, uh, the, about the city and the region.
0: So you, you make a donation, you buy a light bulb, you kind of tell that story. How many light bulbs you got?
9: Uh, you know, we're going to be figuring uh, all that out once we get a, a vendor in place, but we've heard uh, upwards of 250,000 light
0: bulbs. So... Will this effort work? And, and what are you trying to accomplish? You talked about getting people all on the same page, getting people to, to work together to tell the stories. But, but, but how do you make this work?
9: Well, I, you know, I, I think that it will work. And we're, we're following uh, a couple of models um, that have been successful in other cities, and including Edmonton and San Francisco and others. Um, so we know that this model can work um ultimately i think we're trying to accomplish uh, a number of things i think through that collection of stories and, and dedications uh, that results in this uh beautifully lit bridge every night uh it also serves as a reminder of what uh the power of community uh, can be and when people come together uh you can do things like like change a, a city's skyline and so that's why we think that it could also be catalytic for other projects uh, that could lead to transformative and systemic change uh, in, in Milwaukee. If what comes out of this is a series of best practices for, for how we can do these sorts of large uh, efforts uh, in the city, you know, what else can we do? And I think along with that, too, is, is kind of the innovative approach of a public-private partnership between uh, what we're trying to do with the bridge and our partnership with the state and DOT uh, uh, to, to make that happen. I think that could lead to uh, a framework for how this could be modeled in other cities throughout the state.
0: So, so talk about that. I mean, you can't just wake up one day and say, "I've got this great idea. We're going to put all these light bulbs on the on the Hone Bridge." So, what were some of the hurdles that you had to to overcome in trying to do this?
9: I, guess, I mean, I guess I wouldn't really call them hurdles. They're just the things that, that need to be in place. And the, the biggest piece in that was was really making sure that we uh, did our homework and we spent. Two years uh, doing our homework and and talking to people from uh, community and neighborhood and civic leaders to uh, uh, elected officials to uh, appointed officials at the state, the DOT, um, the Coast Guard, the city, the county, um, talking at great length about what we're trying to do to make sure that, you know, if we go out and we try and raise and and, and get people to give us money, that we want to make sure that when we hit our goal, uh, we can actually get those lights up on the bridge. So uh, that has been, I think, the biggest piece of this is, is really understanding and making sure that there's an appetite that people want to do this mm-hmm. and there is um, and then making sure that we've got uh, kind of our ducks in a row uh, when it comes to the logistics and the approvals and, and, and having all the right people on board uh, supporting us for this
0: well and this is this is again a lofty goal this has been a, a long time in the making What is the feedback that you're getting after the launch of this project, whether it's from people who live in Milwaukee or people who are from out state, what are, what are they saying?
9: It's it's been really remarkable. The feedback has been incredibly positive. Um, You know, it's cool being a part of this because I get to, and the team gets to read through the dedications and and, and donations that have already been made to the effort. and, And they're incredibly positive. People are telling great stories. And, you know, I think we're seeing not only, Uh, that it's, it's an opportunity for people to feel connected with the city in which they live, but, uh, from the perspective of people who've lived here in the past and moved away, they're, they're, they're feeling an opportunity to get connected, uh, seeing that this can be a regional, uh, effort or a statewide or even a national effort, depending on where you live and what connections you might feel to that bridge or to Milwaukee or to Wisconsin. So it's really been, um, a very positive, uh, feedback, uh, uh, and response so far, and, and we hope that'll continue.
0: Mike Hosted with a light the hone. When do you think this project will be completed and, and really get underway?
9: Well, you know, we um, obviously a lot of that's going to be fundraising dependent. Um, the, the faster we can raise the funds, uh, the faster we can get started uh, with the the effort. So, um, our goal though is that by the end of this summer uh, to start uh, working with the DOT on the de- design phase. We'll be putting out an RFP to. Uh, lighting uh, designers all across the country or even the world um, uh, to find that best fit for what we want to do and within our budget. Um, and then from there, as funds continue to come in, we move towards procurement and construction and then eventually operations and maintenance. Our, our optimistic goal on this is that we want to have a bridge with, uh, uh, in, in time for summer of 2019.
0: That is, that is an, a, a, an aggressive goal, and it sounds like it lines up with what we hope to be uh, a, a, a big convention in our city as well. Uh, how, yeah. can, how can people get involved if they wanna be a, a part of it or learn more?
9: Absolutely. Um, I would recommend that people go to lightthehome.com, uh, okay. where you can uh, make a dedication or uh, get in touch with us. We're looking for partners and, and um, unique ways to, to get the word out about this effort and, and, and uh, garner
0: participation. So do you, does it matter if you are part of this group or a, a young person? I mean, this is really led by the, it said like 20s, 30s, forties somethings kind of the next generation of leaders. Does it matter if you fit that demographic?
9: Certainly not. We, we've, we've received dedications from, from all walks of life, and that's, that's really what this is about. So uh, the group of us that have been uh, kind of behind getting this effort going in the first place uh, do fall into that younger leader category. And I think that that's, um, you know, we look at this project as, as uh, catalyzing that group um, as a way of saying if we can figure out how to work together, um, this could be a group that could really do uh, transformative things uh, in the city for years to come. Uh, but but really, at its core, this is, this is for everybody.
0: Well, very cool. Well, good luck in your effort, Mike, if Director of Innovation for Milwaukee, Light the Hone. Uh, check it out. Uh, thanks for being here. Good luck in your efforts.
9: Great. Thanks so much, Tracy. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Thanks. This is Tracy Johnson, WTMJ, filling in for Jeff. Good afternoon. Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Harley-Davidson, a Milwaukee icon. It held its annual meeting last week in Milwaukee and unexpectedly did not allow the media to be a part of it. Now, usually the media is welcome to these annual meetings, to these, these it's usually like a party and it's at the museum. Well, it follows announcement in January that Harley-Davidson had announced plans to close an assembly plant in Kansas City and merge the operations to a plant in York, Pennsylvania in addition, laying off 800 workers. So they also reported that retail sales had fallen 6.7% in 2017 compared to the prior year and that sales have been declining as well. So what's happening with Harley-Davidson? They're, they have another anniversary coming up this summer. They continue to be a Milwaukee icon. They continue to be very present in our community. But but there seems to be a demographic shift that is not playing in their favor. What do they need to do to stay a relevant company, to remain a Milwaukee and a, and a United States icon? 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. This brand has been around for more than 100 years. And every five 10, 15, 20 years, they have these these huge anniversary parties and then all throughout the country bringing people together to ride their Harleys, to celebrate the brand. But sales are declining, not only in the United States, but across the world. What do they need to do to, to remain a relevant company? 414-799-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. The demographic the demographics just don't seem to be in their favor. The, the boomers are, are aging out. The millennials just aren't adapting. And even there, even though there are so many of these millennials, they're, they're just not gravitating towards that Harley-Davidson brand. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It's the debt. It's the fact that they might be worried about safety. It's the fact that they just aren't embracing that brand. I think the the boomers, in great part, had really embraced that as their own. That's what held them apart. And I do know a couple people who are in the, the X generation and the millennial generation who are really trying to go after that nostalgic Harley Davidson feel. But is that enough to sustain the company 414-799-1620 on the acunet mortgage talk and text line what do you think what does harley davidson need to do to remain a relevant iconic, iconic company not only that but the jobs the jobs that are at stake as a result of this your calls coming up next on wtmj There are approximately 500 homeless veterans spread across the state of Wisconsin. John and Melissa will introduce you to a man who used to be one of them, and he's now helping other vets find their way home. That's at 3.30 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. We are talking Harley-Davidson and the the decline in sales, the decline in stock performance of this company over the last couple of years, and really significantly over the last couple of quarters. Glenn in Milwaukee what does harley davidson need to do to remain relevant christina uh what what does harley davidson need to do to remain relevant hi um well they just
10: need to broaden their horizons a little bit they are really sticking to one demographic and there's nothing wrong with that demographic what they do what they like but not everybody fits into that mold and you can't whine and complain when you only cater to one type of person that your sales are going down there are people who don't like to hang out at bars that love a nice bike ride um and i just think that they need to um cater to that a little bit more in and talk to different groups of people
0: well what about the diversification when they they had acquired buell and they were they were you know really trying to break into that that younger demographic is it about the look and feel or is it about the the money and how expensive these things are
10: Well, that could be a little bit of it, too, because, again, if you're going to constrict yourself and only cater to one market, whether it's economic or style, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences of that. Um, But I still think everybody, when they think of Harley, they think of, you know, gruff people riding motorcycles, which, again, there's nothing wrong with that. but. Um, there are, are uh, they're leaving a lot of the population out who don't fit into that category but still enjoy a motorcycle ride and they need to learn how to market to those
0: people and how to adapt to those people different bike styles different marketing mm-hmm. you know well we adapt uh, adapt or die will oh, harley-davidson exactly. yes or no harley-davidson in 10 years will they be around
10: if they don't change, absolutely not. That's how this world works. You need to adapt or you're going to go away.
0: All right. Thanks, Christina. Glenn in Milwaukee, what do you think? What does Harley need to do?
10: How are you doing, Christina? Yeah, I used to work for
5: Harley Davidson for about 10 years. And um, in that time, I mean, I didn't hear the last caller, but, you know, I heard you actually talking about uh, the fuel brand. Mm-hmm. And I and I truly believe that was the demise when, they, when the company as a whole shifted and says, you know what, we're not going to go into that direction. Um, Actually, you know, I mean, I think the company, I know the employees had a lot of pride in that bike. Um, Even though the 1125R, uh, the the motorcycle motor was not made by Harley over at our plant here in Mm -hmm. Silgram Road. there was a lot of there was a lot of positives that were made. Uh, the Ulysses uh, motorcycle was was an excellent bike. You know, it, it competed with a little bit of off road demographics. But what it did was, you know, the, the the Buell brand got riders, younger riders, into the showroom. Um, and that's what's missing. Um, is is bridging
0: those younger drivers. And and it's, so it's not the brand so much, which a lot of these companies can survive just with the with the brand, and whether you're going into apparel or whether you are cross selling with other types of of, of of merchandise. But but Harley is just so so focused on the one type of motorcycle and that one type of demographic. You're saying that's just almost suicidal.
5: Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, look at look at even you know the products that indian is coming out with they got they got a lot of beautiful bikes i mean they cater to the elder uh the elder rider but i mean it's i think it's a classy bike and the bike is very well designed i think the motor is Mm -hmm. a little bit heftier um so i mean harley has a lot of competition just nipping at the heels and because of that they have lost tremendous market share
0: well they've evolved they've evolved over time they've survived a hundred years a century of recessions of buyouts of mergers of acquisitions of all of these things going global so what's your take will harley davidson be around in 10 years
5: i think they'll be around i mean you're not going to get rid of an icon um but the icon will have A very small and diminished market share you're not going to see you know the grandiose party that you've seen in the past like say for the the 100th anniversary yeah you're going to see a smaller harley crowd um you know harley riders are dedicated i mean it's you're never going to get rid of that i mean you got chevy you got chevy people and you got Ford people uh yeah and they're 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 bent on their products so i mean you're always going to have the love of harley Davidson. you're never going to see that but i'm what, I, what I'm going to tell you is, you know, as you've seen and as it's been proven on Wall Street, they have been losing market share. And I don't know how you can recover from that, but they need to change things and change things quickly.
0: Glenn, thanks for the call. It, it, so I think the, the, the message loud and clear Harley Davidson, you need to evolve, you need to change. You've done it before. We need you in our city, we need you in our country. So. People are passionate, but you need to go after that younger demographic. Tracy and for Jeff, WTMJ. The brewers are almost home, but first they must take a pit stop in the Twin Cities. The crew squares off against the Minnesota Twins to kick off a three-game weekend set. Jeff and Lane are on the call, and our coverage starts at 6.35 tonight, sponsored by Wisconsin Cranberry Growers. Uh, Tracy Johnson here filling in for Jeff Wagner on this Friday afternoon. If you have been to any number of, of, of larger cities, whether it's Reno or San Francisco or even Washington DC you've noticed likely these green bikes or scooters that are kind of going around the city people will 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 hop on hop off these bikes part of a ride share type scenario and in Milwaukee in the city of Milwaukee we've got bubbler bikes but lime bikes are a new product a new offering that that will be entering the city of Milwaukee and I believe Green Bay and Madison in the next couple of months or next couple of years. I know there's a there's a plan to reach out. And and these these bikes are really driven through an app. And what happens is you you load your phone, the app with with money and then you pair it up with the bike, and the bike will then go for any number of, of miles or minutes, at which point you would, would drop the bike off. Now, this product has been launched in, in a number of cities, and because they're so new and because the technology is so progressive, there really are no rules around introducing the product, introducing the bike in this mode of transportation. And so what happens in many cities is, is there is no process for how these bikes are gathered for how these bikes are placed outside of, of, of venues for people to, to, to pick them up. And, and most importantly, the process by which people stop riding them and leave them outside their place of business or their final destination. And so a, a number of cities have had issues with the line bikes and, uh, as a result, there have been other efforts to try to make sure that in new markets like Milwaukee, this is not an issue. So I, I attended a presentation on these Lime bikes a, a few weeks ago and, and is, was fascinated by the concept and fascinated by how this this ride sharing, whether it's a car or a bike or even an Airbnb, how this all fits into our society. And uh, we're going to talk to Gabriel Shear, who works for the company and is working to introduce the lime bike to milwaukee coming up next i think this you are going to find this very very fascinating and you're going to be seeing these things over the summer and in the next couple of weeks in communities all around milwaukee stick around we'll be talking to gabriel sheer tracy johnson wtmj wtmj cares is back with steve scafidi's salute to service presented by first bank financial During the month of May, Steve will share stories of bravery, heroism, and dedication from the police, fire, and emergency responders that serve our community. For more info about WTMJ Cares, Steve Scafidi's Salute to Service, visit WTMJ.com. Those are some incredible stories to catch. Uh, Catch them on the podcast. They are just uh, amazing uh, stories to hear. So we're talking these lime bikes and it's a fascinating concept because we probably haven't seen them in our local communities but if we travel almost anywhere around the country we're running into these ride share options and the newest one to hit our community hopefully is is a company called lime and on the phone we have with us gabriel Shear, who's the director of strategic development gabriel thanks for being here happy to be here all right so so I am going to guess that many of the people in our audience do not know what this rideshare concept is. Break it down for me. Sure.
11: Our company is a provider of urban smart mobility solutions. And what that means for us so far is we offer bikes, pedal-assist electric bikes, and electric scooters deployed in communities. They are similar, if you've seen them in Milwaukee, to the bubbler bikes except a key distinction is that they do not require docks, meaning you pick up one of our bikes, e-bikes or scooters, from a street corner. You ride it. When you're done, you park it, you lock it, and you walk away and you leave it. And you unlock it and lock it with your smartphone. If you don't have one, we have programs for people without those. But the sort of freedom it gives is the ability to move around cities without having to be tethered to a dock or a place that someone has said previously is where these go, and rather to go where you want to go.
0: So what happens if everybody wants to get on a line bike and go to, let's say, Summerfest, or go down to the lakefront, or or what have you? How does that work when you have all these bikes concentrated in one area?
11: It's a great question, and honestly, that is a thing that does happen. Um, Summerfest, to me, is, is a very logical place for people to take our, our bikes or our scooters or our e-bikes Um, I remember when I was a kid going to Summerfest and we would drive to, I don't know how far away. And then there'd be this sort of, I don't know, probably a mile walk, give or take, to get down to Summerfest grounds. And if you think about our vehicles as tools for that type of trip, if they are scattered, you know, give or take half a mile to two miles away, people can park their cars far enough away, but then grab one of those Mm bikes down there and park in a responsible place. That's not blocking anybody else's access to anything. Now, that does lead to a concentration of bikes or scooters or e-bikes in a given area. The idea then from that is when people leave Summerfest, for many of them they hop back on a similar device and ride back to their car. For some people they've maybe had too many drinks or they don't you know they're too tired or whatever. They grab a Lyft or an Uber or, you know, call a friend or something. But for most people, I leave Summerfest, I've had a great day and it's time to go back to the car, I grab a bike or a scooter and move on. Now there are two ways to deal with bikes that haven't been picked up and removed. One of those is, of course, we can leave them there. And if there aren't very many of them and it's not creating any problems, we can simply leave them. However, if that's not the case, there are two ways we deal with it. One is we use our technology in the app to guide people's behavior. So, for example, we can make those bikes or scooters or electric bikes suddenly free if you ride them for a minimum period of time, typically a half an hour. Um, What that means is people see that in the app and they say, oh, great, a free bike. And they ride it 30 minutes and it's out of the area that we don't want it in anymore and it provided someone with utility. The other way we can deal with it is if we have just really a heavy concentration and they haven't been removed and we need them removed is we have operations teams in every market in which we operate. And their job is to make sure that the bikes are moved to places they need to go, as well as, of course, maintaining the bikes or scooters, fixing them, uh, doing anything that needs to be done to keep a fleet in good operating health.
0: Gabriel, this is a – I think for for many people who are still getting used to ride share through a Lyft Mm -hmm. or an Uber, this is such a – a foreign foreign concept is this is are there where do these things go? are they on the streets or are they on the sidewalks? How does this work uh,
11: in terms of parking they're usually on the sidewalks and it does vary by city so we have the company launched in January of last year we now operate over sixty markets across the u s and in Europe as well and for most cities where they want us to place the bikes or scooters is in what's called the furniture or the accessory zone and that is typically the area where you might find a parking meter or a Most paper box or any other number of things on the side of a sidewalk where people typically don't walk, but between where they do walk and the road. So that is where we encourage people to park our bikes. Now, some cities have seen the influx of bikes and scooters and said, this is great. This provides a new mobility option for people. And, by the way, we need more spaces to put them. So we've already seen some cities piloting new ways of thinking. So, for example, we've had cities in Texas who have taken on-street spaces that were previously parking spaces and turned them into bike parking spaces. In Seattle we've seen the city take parking or spaces that were extra wide curb space uh, on the sidewalk and turn that into specified dockless bike parking spaces. So we're seeing cities sort of look at this as this is another part of our transportation infrastructure Mm -hmm. and it needs more infrastructure to support it. Uh, As far as riding them, riding is, is on the road typically. In bike lanes if they're there, if not people can ride them on the road. In some places we have cities where biking on sidewalks is legal. In other cases, biking on sidewalks is illegal. And in all cases, we encourage our riders to obviously choose the legal path as well as the correct path and the safest path. And, of course, not do anything to put anyone at risk.
0: So what happens when these bikes, let's say you need, a lot of people in our community will bike from one community to the next. Let's say they live in Wauwatosa and they work downtown. Mm-hmm. How does that work yep. when you get to the, to the border? Does it just all of a sudden stop working?
11: No, <laughs> that would be that would be challenging. Um, you know, you, what you describe is is humans, right? We don't think in jurisdictional bounds. We think in I'm going from here to there. Mm-hmm. And over the last hundred and twenty years, for almost everyone, the car has been the most logical, easy way to accomplish that mission. So that is why cars dominate our cities is because I know that for the most part, I can get in my car in the morning, drive it to wherever it is I'm going, and if there's another place in between, I can continue that drive. And then in the end, I'll return to my home, and it's a convenient and reliable source of mobility. And in a lot of cases, that convenience and that reliability have led to congestion and cities that are overwhelmed with the number of cars relative to the size of roads and so forth. And so increasingly, cities look for new solutions, and this is where we come in, is we're bringing solutions that will enable that point-to-point, start-to-finish ride, um, but don't necessarily get stuck in the same kind of traffic. So to more directly answer your question about that jurisdictional bound, what would happen in the case of someone riding from Wauwatosa to Milwaukee and back again is that in the case that we're operating in Wauwatosa and Milwaukee, well, hopefully they'd find a bike in Wauwatosa to grab, they'd ride it to Milwaukee, they'd ride back in the night in a different bike or scooter or something mm-hmm. like that. In the case of somebody who picked one up and rode it from downtown Milwaukee, for example, to, I don't know, wherever, Cuttahye or something, um, if we didn't operate in Cudahee, then they ride there, they leave it there. If it's not creating a problem for anyone, we're comfortable with them doing that. It's very likely in the morning they'd walk out and it would still be there because we don't operate there, so there's probably not as much demand. Mm-hmm. They could ride that then back into the city. If it is outside the bounds for a couple of days, we'll go and get it. But for the most part, we find that people who ride, in that example, out to Cutty or something, um, they typically want to come back again. And so they may have ridden it there for a reason and want it to come back again.
0: This is a fascinating concept. I have Justin on the text line who asked, How do you prevent vandals? from taking advantage of this property
11: that's a great question uh the reality is that like anything else that's in public we we can't prevent vandals what we can do is try to minimize the damage they can do and then to correct for the damage they've done and i think more importantly what we see here is an asset to a community and if we've done our jobs right any community in which we launch feels that this is indeed something that brings value to the community at large which tends to create a sense of ownership and if people in the community feel that this is a useful tool that we want here then hopefully they don't end up with a sense that this is okay to vandalize or damage mm-hmm. or otherwise do, do injustice to. And what we find is that we have people on the flip side of the vandal side helping us. So we'll get reports saying, hey, somebody did this thing to this bike, and we'll go and retrieve it or we'll fix it or do whatever needs to be done. We've actually had people, I don't want to imply vigilantism, but people say, hey, I caught somebody doing something, and I said, stop, and, you know, just wanted to let you know. Um, So we've had that kind of response where people see this as a value add to their lives and a utility that they need or that they find a need for, uh, and then it becomes something that they don't want to see destroyed. They don't want to see it damaged. Mm -hmm. That said, of course, there is vandalism, and and we do our best to respond as quickly as we can to that.
0: Well, thank you, Gabriel. This is fascinating technology, and the hope is to have this introduced in summertime uh, in 2018 correct
11: yeah i mean realistically launching any kind of bike or scooter or otherwise in the winter in milwaukee is probably not, <laughs> probably not a
0: good idea well <laughs> um, so, it, well we, we, we wish you luck and gabriel thank you, thank you so much for your time it's lime is the company and and watch for the lime bikes uh throughout milwaukee coming this summer this is tracy in for jeff
7: w277 cv and wtmj milwaukee from the annex wealth management studios this is news radio wtmj
0: Good afternoon. Tracy Johnson on WTMJ filling in for Jeff Wagner on this Friday afternoon. It's 2.54. And this weekend is not only a a big weekend for many of Milwaukee college graduates. Uh, UWM and Marquette University both have graduation ceremonies taking place this weekend. And I think some some really interesting graduation speakers, uh, lots of events going on uh, around the city. It's going to be hopping. Uh, But in addition to that, we have teased this uh, throughout the show. Uh, There is a little wedding taking place. And I, I found it Interesting, not only just the fascination with this with the wedding, and I will be one of those people who's up at six o'clock in the morning watching this wedding, and I would venture to guess that ninety nine percent of you out there will be doing the same thing or checking it on uh, online because it it will just be uh, a spectacular event to behold. In fact, I think they're estimating that this will be the most widely watched wedding ever and of course because of the proliferation of the internet and social media and so on and so forth but not only are are some of these interesting stories coming out the fact that that the bride will be walked down by prince charles uh because because meghan markle's father is is sick and he just had surgery and unable to be there but elton john is their 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 singer at their wedding and how cool would that be right Elton John is going to be here in Milwaukee at the new Bucks Arena this fall. But he had canceled two tour dates in order to perform this wedding. Now, if I had tickets for that concert, I I think I might be a little bit ticked off for that. But nevertheless, I'm sure it's going to be an outstanding performance. It will be an event to to behold, and um, I'm sure it will be the talk of the town Monday morning uh, when we rejoin. But a big congratulations to all of the graduates from Marquette University and UWM who will be crossing the stage this weekend. Uh, I want to do a big thanks to my guest today. Uh, Gabriel Shear, who we just heard from, from Lime, Lime Bikes. We're hearing all about this new mode of transportation, of shared transportation. Austin Ramirez, the CEO of Husco International, who talked through the the no labels concept and getting to this place where politics really doesn't, play into our decisions and, and what do we do about that and Alex Lazary, really appreciate coming on board talking about one of the biggest conventions that we may have the chance to bid for in our community and then of course Mike Hosted from Greater Milwaukee uh, who is talking about the Hone Bridge and the, their effort to try to light the Hone Bridge through this crowdsourcing and crowdfunding so big thanks to them uh, have a great weekend great to be here John, Melissa, what do you have coming up?
12: Great show, Tracy. Great show you had, too. Lots of good guests. All right, we've got lots of stuff. Lots of lots of stuff. We're putting 10 pounds of stuff in a 5-pound bag, and it's all good stuff. Here's what we're going to do off the top. Make sure you have the latest on that shooting in Texas. 10 dead, 10 injured. We are live on the ground in Texas. We'll bring you that coming up as we head through the afternoon here. A couple of other really big things Darian Driver is done in a couple of days. Her only radio interview, Darian Driver, will be with us live coming up at 4.30. She will be with us talking about the struggles... The triumphs, her time as the head of MPS, that is at 434. You will only hear that here. Uh, Paul Farrow, Waukesha County Executive, they've got good news on the opioid front. Really good news, actually. He'll explain what they're doing right in this battle. The county executive is with us at 350. And Alderman Mark Borkowski thinks it's a crazy idea to think about legalizing street racing, even if it's at the Milwaukee Mile. The Alderman will be with us live coming up at 420. Lots of stuff this afternoon, plus a... Formerly homeless veteran who has now made it, talking about the real problem in our community. That's at 3.30. We've got a full show ahead. It starts with the news at the top of the hour. Up next on WTMJ.